I would like to call this joint subcommittee hearing to order. Uh, it's a very important hearing, atrocities in Xinjiang, where do we go from here? And it's two Senate Foreign Relations subcommittees, the Subcommittee on Western Hemisphere and Global Human Rights and the East Asia Subcommittee. Uh, it's a very important event. We don't do joint subcommittee hearings often. It's the first one we've done in seven years. Uh, and it is the first meeting of the Western Hemisphere and the Democracy Human Rights Subcommittee in this session of Congress. We wanted to start off with a hearing on something that is deeply, deeply important. And I thank my colleagues, the leadership of both subcommittees and staff for joining on this important matter today. This matter of the treatment of Uyghurs in China has to be highlighted and exclamation pointed to the world. China's human rights abuses are well known and widespread, not just in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs, but in particular across the country China limits the political expression, religious freedom, reproductive choice, and citizens' ability to choose where they live and work. China has repressed Tibet for decades and has launched a despicable and comprehensive crackdown on political dissent in Hong Kong. All of these issues deserve our condemnation and urgent action by the United States and by the world. Nowhere is the assault on individual freedom and basic human rights more comprehensive and more atrocious than against the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang province. Uh, as a paper released Tuesday by one of our witnesses, Dr. Adrian Zentz demonstrated, the Chinese government views high concentration of Uyghurs as a national security threat and has been implementing for years a campaign to eliminate the Uyghur population. The tools and the techniques and the ideology behind this reminds me of the discredited eugenics movement in the United States in the 19-teens and 20s uh, that was also responsible in large measure for the Holocaust in Europe pre and during the Second World War. The methods employed by the Chinese government are horrific. They include abduction from third countries, forced disappearances within China, mass detention, secret trials, forced labor, forced sterilization, separating families, banning the use of Uyghur language in schools, and prohibiting a whole range of religious practices. The practices also include political indoctrination. And what individuals around the world are finding is that there is nowhere they can be in the world where they are not safe from persecution by China if they advocate for Uyghur freedom. China has mastered in these uh, horrific practices the use of uh, technology to enhance and accelerate political repression. The installation of surveillance cameras and other devices that can recognize faces, voices, irises, and even the gait of an individual to try to target them for persecution. At the same time, China is sending Uyghurs out of Xinjiang province to work elsewhere in the country and engaged in a campaign to import Han Chinese into Xinjiang, including installing individuals from elsewhere in China to live with and report on Uyghur families. China uh, has, in recent years, abandoned its well-known one-child policy and because of demographics is now encouraging Han families to have more children at the same time as they're trying to, through forced sterilization and other methods, drive the birth of Uyghur minority down to near zero. I'm proud that senators of both parties have been working together and highlight and denounce these practices, including by passing legislation determining that these actions constitute genocide. I appreciate that both former Secretary Pompeo and 
current Secretary Blinken have described these actions as genocide and that additional countries are now making similar determinations as well. At the same time, our actions have not stopped China's abuses and in fact recent research from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute shows that China has built or expanded 61 detention sites just between July 2019 and July 2020. The atrocities that we'll discuss today, and there's visual evidence of them that we'll describe as we're into the hearing, should outrage all of us and motivate us to action. I have an additional layer of concern because the state of Virginia is home to one of the largest diasporas of uh, Uyghurs in the United States. They are, these are citizens and residents who are our neighbors and friends in the Commonwealth. And in many cases, Chinese government actions target these families in Virginia, and we'll hear testimony of that today. We're here to shine a light on the latest information about these atrocities, looking at the issue both at the macro level and highlighting the case, in my instance, of one individual, Dr. Gulshan Abbas, a detained medical doctor who is the sister and niece of one of my constituents. We're particularly interested in the suggestions from our witnesses about how we can pressure China to end these atrocities and bring them to the greater attention of the entire world. If there's things we can do to prevent U.S. companies from behaving either in direct or indirect ways to enhance the surveillance state atrocities against Uyghur Muslims, we want to know that. And I also hope that our witnesses will address any ideas for action that we can take together with our partners. Thank you, and I want to now offer uh, an opportunity for opening comments to the ranking member of the Western Hemisphere and Human Rights Subcommittee, Senator Rubio, and then we'll follow with opening comments from the chair and ranking of the East Asia Subcommittee, Senators Markey and Romney. Senator Rubio. Well, thank you. I want to thank you and all the members here uh, for convening this, this important hearing. I also want to thank our witnesses. I want you to know that your research and your advocacy have done much to shine a bright light on these atrocities that are being committed in Xinjiang by the Chinese Communist Party. And Ms. Abbas, who I understand joins us virtually, was my guest at the State of the Union last February. Her sister is currently detained in a camp. She and Dr. Goshan's daughter, Ziba, have been forced to live without their family for no other reason than the fact that they are Uyghurs. Dr. Richardson, you have testified in front of the the CECC, which I had uh, the honor to, to chair for a number of years, you've done so in the past, testified in your work as well as that of Dr. Zenz has been instrumental to me, to my team, to all of us in helping to craft policies. That includes the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act, which became law last year, and the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which we are very hopeful will become law very soon. Uh, we're hopeful the, the full committee will be able to hear it uh, as soon as this month. You know, in a few weeks, the Chinese Communist Party is going to mark its 100 years since its founding. They're going to likely gather in Beijing and cities across China to celebrate this centennial. Um, it should actually be a national day of mourning. That would be a more appropriate. Uh, the, the crimes committed by the Chinese Communist Party are too numerous to catalog here. Um, but, but the one we're focused on today is an effort by the Chinese Communist Party to completely eliminate Turkic Muslims, especially Uyghurs and other ethnic groups in Xinjiang. Since all this has come to light, we've learned the appalling extent of these violations. There are more than one million Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslims detained in camps and forced into labor. The network of detention facilities and factories has turned Xinjiang into a huge, massive labor camp. Guards at these camps force Uyghur men to renounce their faith, to shave their beards, and to violate Muslim dietary restrictions. Uyghur women have been raped, experienced other forms of heinous sexual violence and have undergone forced sterilization and forced abortions. Families are ripped apart. 
adults working in factories and children sent to state-operated orphanages, at least that's what they call them. The goal is to brainwash them, to strip them of their language, their culture, their traditions, their identity, and isolate them from their families and communities. The Chinese Communist Party is also working to suppress birth rates among Uyghur populations, with official data now showing birth rates already declining between 48.7 percent between 2017 and 2019. Earlier this year, former Secretary of State Pompeo determined that crimes against humanity and genocide are being committed by the Chinese Communist Party. It's a determination the Biden administration has rightfully upheld. Uh, it's important to call these crimes by their proper name, and I give credit to both administrations for doing so. But we need to do something about these crimes, even more than just call them for what they are. China's efforts to silence Uyghurs and turn the world's attention away from the ongoing atrocities also include coercing and intimidating those Uyghurs who live abroad. That includes American citizens and American residents. American citizens speaking out are at great risk of having the Chinese Communist Party target themselves and their family members who remain in Xinjiang. Earlier this year, CNN reported a Uyghur man being taken from his pregnant wife in Dubai and extradited to China. We don't fight back against the extraterritorial reach of the CCP now. We will one day find that such practices will increase in frequency to the point that many places outside of China will be just as dangerous as the territories they directly, directly controlled by the CCP. I would, I would note in closing that the one major difference between past and present crimes of the Communist Party of China is the motivation. It has evolved beyond simply power to both power and profit. Many Uyghurs and other Muslims are forced to manufacture goods such as textiles and electronics and food products. They're also transported to other provinces and they're forced to work there. The Chinese government calls this, quote, poverty alleviation. That's the term they've come up for it. But everybody else knows what it is. It's slavery. While some companies are waking up to this reality, that are, that are, that, to the reality that they are unwittingly profiting from these crimes, many still have not. For far too long, companies like Nike and Apple and Amazon and Coca-Cola were using forced labor. They were benefiting from forced labor or sourcing from suppliers that were suspected of using forced labor. These companies, sadly, were making all of us complicit in these crimes. That's why it is critical that the Senate quickly pass our Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act to ensure that goods made by forced labor, by Uyghur forced labor, do not enter our markets and make all Americans unwitting accomplices. The crimes against humanity and genocide that are taking place at the hands of the Chinese Communist Party demand an urgent international response. I urge the Biden administration to use all of its tools at its disposal to end these atrocities and ensure that the CCP does not benefit from these crimes. But it is incumbent upon us, those here in Congress, to act as well. And I'm hopeful that our legislation will be a major step in that direction. And I thank you for holding this hearing. Thank you, Senator Rubio. Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. <clears throat> and thank you uh, for coordinating uh, between our two subcommittees, the subcommittee which uh, Senator Romney and I lead on China and the subcommittee which uh, you and Senator Rubio lead on human rights. These two issues have to be brought together and we have to focus upon it with this special attention which we're giving to it today because we will be giving a voice uh, to the victims of the horrific atrocities being carried out by the Chinese government and explore ways in which the United States can prevent this suffering and hold its perpetrators to account. The genocide in Xinjiang is a stain on the global conscience. It's hard to fathom how in the 21st century, 
such unspeakable crimes can occur. The Chinese government is engaged in a widespread coordinated effort to eliminate Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang and their way of life by engaging in forced labor, arbitrary detention, torture, sexual abuse, sterilization, forced assimilation, and other atrocities amounting to genocide. This alarming repression of China's most marginalized citizens reveals the fundamental rot and weakness of the Chinese system. America's strength is derived from the example it sets by championing human rights and representational government. And we must lead the world in exposing and opposing the crimes of this brutal regime. We cannot decouple our bilateral relationship with China from the lives of persecuted Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities and their families, many of whom live in the United States. The Chinese government's harassment of Uyghurs extends beyond their own borders, and Uyghur Americans and their families have been targeted and intimidated here in the United States as well. I know we will be hearing from wonderful experts today who will shine a light on the plight of Uyghurs and other minorities in Xinjiang. And I hope that this hearing is going to be an opportunity for us to identify additional ways that we can meaningfully address this ongoing genocide. Preventing further atrocities and seeking justice and accountability must be a top foreign policy uh, agenda for this administration, but for us here in Congress as well. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Markey. Senator Romney. Thank you, Senator Markey, for your comments, and uh, thank you to the witnesses for appearing today. Uh, thank you to uh, Senator Rubio for his Uyghur forced labor bill, uh, and, and I hope that that uh, receives the support from our colleagues that it desperately needs. Um, this is obviously a topic of interest to the world at large because it concerns some of the most heinous human rights abuses on the planet today. And they're being carried out by a highly developed nation that's also trying to promote itself as a model to nations around the world. Of course, many of the Chinese Communist Party's outrageous actions are well known by others. Its censorship, its incarceration of journalists, its repression of religion, its oppression of all minorities, its surveillance of its own citizens. But when it comes to its genocide of the Uyghur people, China has largely been able to hide what it's perpetrating from the world at large, from the concentration camps and forced labor, to families being torn apart, to Uyghur women being sexually abused by Han Chinese. What the Communist Chinese Party is perpetrating on the Uyghur people is atrocity not seen or imagined coming from a nation in the modern era. Our hearing today is meant to inform us on the conditions and treatment of these people and to help us consider steps that can be taken to end this abuse. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Romney. Let me now introduce the witnesses, and then we will hear their testimony in the order that I introduce them. We have a superb panel of three witnesses. First, uh, appearing virtually, Dr. Adrian Zenz is an anthropologist whose ingenuity, persistence, and thoroughness have helped uncover important details about the scale and the ferocity of China's persecution of the Uyghurs, as well as China's ethnic policy in general. Dr. Zenz was born in Germany. He obtained a master's degree in development studies from the University of Auckland, followed by a PhD in social anthropology from Cambridge. 
He previously worked as a lecturer in social research methodology and doctoral advisors at the European School of Culture and Theology, currently serves as a senior, senior fellow in China studies at the Victims of Communism Foundation here in Washington, D.C. He also serves as an advisor to the Interparliamentary Alliance in China. Dr. Zenz is the author of two books on Tibet, and just this week he presented new and very compelling detailed research demonstrating that the Chinese government sees the Uyghurs as a national security threat and is attempting to dilute the population in Xinjiang province by forcibly reducing birth rates and importing Han Chinese. Dr. Zenz joins us remotely from Minnesota. Our second witness who will follow Dr. Zenz, very important, is Rushan Abbas. She was born and raised in Xinjiang province. She, be, she first became an activist as a student, organizing and leading pro-democracy demonstrations at Xinjiang University in 1985 and then 1988. She came to the U.S. as a young adult to study English and was horrified three weeks after her arrival in the U.S. witnessing China's crackdown on protesters, including some of her friends at Tiananmen Square. Ms. Abbas has worked as a journalist for Radio Free Asia and the U.S. government as a translator for Uyghur detainees at Guantanamo and also has worked on resettlement efforts for those detainees. She spent the bulk of her career, more than 20 years, working in international business development while also volunteering to advocate for Uyghur people. In September 2018, Ms. Abbas announced China's use of detention camps in Xinjiang at a think tank event. Just six days later, her sister and her aunt, who were living in different cities in Xinjiang province, were both secretly detained. For more than two years, the Chinese government refused to answer any questions about the whereabouts of Ms. Abbas's sister, Dr. Gulshan Abbas, a medical doctor who has spent her career caring for patients in Xinjiang. A year after her sister's disappearance, Ms. Abbas left a career in business development and is now dedicating herself full-time to advocating for the Uyghur community. She's the founder and executive director of the Campaign for Uyghurs and is an effective advocate. Today's hearing is particularly fitting for the Abbas family. As Dr. Abbas's birthday is Saturday, Dr. Abbas's picture is right here behind Senator Markey. This will be her third birthday spent in detention. The family learned in December, just recently, that Ms. Abbas was secretly tried on false terrorism charges in 2019 and sentenced to 20 years in prison. I want to welcome Dr. Abbas's Dr. Ziba Murat, who is here. So glad that you're with us who is here in person, Ms. Abbas, Ms. Murat, and several other members of their family live in Virginia. I'm proud to have them as my constituents. Ms. Abbas is joining us from London, where she has just finished testifying, testifying at a series of hearings on Chinese atrocities toward the Uyghurs. Finally, our third witness is Dr. Sophie Richardson. She's the China Director at Human Rights Watch, renowned expert on China's human rights abuses frequently here on the Hill to educate members of Congress. She's a graduate of Oberlin College and the Hopkins uh, Nanjing program, completed her PhD at the University of Virginia in political science and government. She's the author of China, Cambodia, and the Five, Five Principles of Peaceful Coexistence, as well as numerous articles on domestic Chinese political reform, democratization, and human rights in China and across Asia. Asia, we're very glad that Dr. Richardson could be with us in person. So that will be uh, our introductions. Again, we'll first hear um, from Dr. Zenz, then uh, Ms. Abbas, then Dr. Richardson, and then we will proceed to questions. Um, Dr. Zenz, by the able assistance of the staff members of this committee, you will now magically appear on the screen before us, and we're anxious to hear what you have to say. 
Well, thank you indeed very much, um, Mr. Chairman. I hope you can hear and see me. We're hearing you just fine. We're not yet seeing you, but we're hearing you fine. So keep talking and we'll hope, we hope we'll see you. Oh, here he is. Now we can see you. Thank you. Good. Well, I thank you for inviting me to testify today. In retrospect, it is clear that Beijing has carefully prepared its campaign of subjugating the Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities in Xinjiang through an unprecedented buildup of police forces in 2016 and 17, complemented by advanced surveillance technologies. Party Secretary Chen Quanguo used strategically the first nine months of his reign in Xinjiang to prepare the ground, then embarking on the internment campaign while simultaneously rolling out other aspects of the atrocity, including forced labor, <coughs> sending children to boarding schools, and birth prevention. The CCP's long-term strategy in Xinjiang began first with what Chinese researchers themselves have called drastic short-term measures that were absolutely necessary and effective. Quote, there was a quote, end of quote. An internment and re-education campaign to break people's will and unable to, state, to assimilate an entire people. This, quote, short-term measure is culminating in several long-term aspects that I will discuss. First, an imprisonment campaign, which removes key influences or the elite of Uyghur society by sentencing them to long prison terms. At the same time, nightlight analysis of satellite images, such as conducted by the RAND Corporation earlier this year, showed that by May 2020, only 13% of re-education camps, which are run in addition to prisons, showed a significant decline in nightlight emissions, potentially indicating closure. For 45% of camps, the emissions increased. The authors estimate that by mid-2020, 87% of internment camps were still likely active. Second, parent-child separation. Children are reared by the state in highly securitized boarding schools where they must speak Chinese and are raised as loyal followers of the party. This is designed to win over the entire next generation. Third, coercive labor, by which men and women are made to work in full-time labor-intensive factory work, separating families, maximizing state control over the young generation, breaking intergenerational chains of cultural transmission. Labor transfers also serve to reduce the population density in Uyghur heartlands, const constituting one aspect of a population strategy. Fourth, a drastic reduction in birth rates. Significantly lower numbers of children make it easier for the state to focus resources on indoctrinating the young, promoting social control, and assimilating them through greater mixing with the Han, reducing also the need for policing and security over a shrinking population. New evidence shows that Xinjiang's campaign to suppress birth rates is very likely part of a long-term strategy to, quote, optimize the ethnic population structure, end of quote. Chinese academics and politicians argue that Xinjiang's, quote, terrorism problem can only be solved by optimizing its ethnic population structure. High ethnic minority population concentrations <coughs> are considered a national security threat. Optimizing such concentrated Uyghur populations requires embedding substantial Han populations into them to dilute them. The Han, quote, positive culture, end of quote, is supposed to mitigate what some researchers have called the Uyghur, quote, human problem, end of quote. Scenarios 
that bring in large numbers of Huns sufficient to dilute and embed the Uyghurs, but do not overburden the region's ecological carrying capacity, entail drastic reductions in ethnic minority natural population growth, which is also the key recommendation of related officials and researchers. Based on population projections that were published by Chinese academics, my research shows that this difference could range between 2.6 and 4.5 million lost lives through state-mandated birth prevention by the year 2040. The most likely scenario uh, being minus 2.5 per mil negative population growth. Beijing's strategy in Xinjiang is not one of population destruction, but of population control. It's a mass atrocity without mass slaughter, one with human rights violations of historic proportions, but leading to a loss of millions of lives potentially. The most concerning aspect is that minorities are demonized and framed as a human problem threatening an otherwise healthy society. Xinjiang no longer publishes reports of birth rates or population counts breakdowns by region or ethnic group, leaving researchers in the dark and preparing the region to cover its tracks as a slow genocide is unfolding. I urgently ask that the U.S. Senate passes the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act and that the U.S. government enacts further economic and or diplomatic sanctions on the Chinese government <clears throat> in light of mounting evidence of an ongoing genocide, sanctions on technology that could be used in atrocities, punitive economic sanctions, strong measures against Uyghur forced labor, and especially a strong framework to cause American companies to comply with sanctions against forced labor, even if this results in retaliatory acts against them referring to Beijing's new strategy to enact counter-sanctions against U.S. entities or companies. This creates a new challenge that calls for strong targeted measures that American companies will comply with U.S. law and sanctions. The United States should also seek to exert maximum pressure against Beijing at the United Nations over mounting evidence for genocide, using all disposable means to raise public attention, coerce relevant U.N. departments into action, or at least naming and shaming. The U.S. should also consider strong measures against the Beijing Olympics publicly calling on U.S. companies to revoke their sponsorship and doing more to publicly expose the moral relativism of the IOC. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Zenz. We will now move to um, Ms. Abbas and Dr. Richardson to follow. There will be two roll call votes at 11.30. I believe we'll be able to get through both sets of witness testimony, and then my intention is we'll just keep the hearing rolling and have folks attend and come back and forth. But uh, if I could ask uh, Ms. Abbas to now testify. Thank you. Hello, can you see me and hear me? We can hear you and see you, thank you. Okay. Thank you so much uh, to Senator Kane, Senator Marquis, and Senator Rubio, and the members of the committee for holding this hearing and giving me a chance to testify here. Today's Chinese regime has been fed by the West and empowered by the willful ignorance of the international community. Beijing is seeking global domination. The genocide Uyghurs are facing will be the future of the entire world if we do not move quickly. Orwellian surveillance, slavery, forced abortions, forced sterilizations, mass institutionalized rape, torture, concentration camps, crematoria. We know where this is leading. We swear never again many years ago, but we are not living up to that promise with the right sense of urgency. The CCP's denying journalists access to the region means that 
the Chinese regime has been able to control the narrative surrounding their genocidal crimes, especially within their own borders. This has led to a high number of genocide denialists who target survivors and activists attempting to undermine their stories and even threatening their lives. I'm joining you now from London, where I recently testified for the Independent Uyghur Tribunal. What I have heard in the past few days from the witnesses, experts, and even a perpetrator himself has informed that this situation is far worse than what we are hearing or speaking. Every word they spoke brought terror to my soul. This has been ongoing for years, and while we might pat ourselves on the back for making progress, Uyghurs back home are facing active genocide. And every day that goes by is another hell on earth. For myself, each night is a sleepless one imagining what horrors my own sister might be facing. In September of 2018, my sister, Dr. Gulshan Abbas, a gentle, non-political, law-binding grandmother was taken by the CCP in retaliation for my advocacy and use of free speech here in United States as a US citizen. She retired from her medical career early due to a poor house. In two days, it will be her 59th birthday and the third birthday that she has spent in a dungeon without her family. The Chinese regime has remained silent about her whereabouts. In fact, they published libel against me and they said that my claims of her disappearance were false. They stated that I had stolen someone else's photo and made up a missing relative. Chinese state actors use platforms which are forbidden to their own residents in order to discredit our advocacy work in spite of this propaganda. It was confirmed in December of last year by the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs that she was sentenced harshly to prison on sham charges. Like so many Uyghurs, her supposed crimes are kept purposely vague. They used the false claims of terrorism and separatism to dehumanize and target any Uyghur, but her true crime was her ethnic identity, being an Uyghur. Of course, I am one of the millions who are suffering, but this situation illustrates how family members are being held hostage to punish American citizens for utilizing our rights here in a free country. My niece Ziba is in the room with you right now. She has put her entire life on hold and even moved to DC area to continue to desperately seek to free her mother. Words cannot express how painful it is for me to watch her struggle to raise her own three years old daughter while they're dealing with the immense pain and the trauma of having her mother held hostage. It's not an exaggeration to say that we in the United States have long deliberately ignored all the warning signs of this regime, but we are waking up. A regime blatantly committing genocide should not be treated as an equal. We cannot continue to choose to treat an international criminal organization as a legitimate government. The United States has been at the forefront of holding the regime accountable. 
but we need to see more legislation that we offer will offer material protections for Uyghur people. We desperately need stronger coordination between our allies and the shared valued countries. You can find some of my recommendations, including regarding legislations in my written testimony. The Uyghur issue must be treated as critically urgent, not only for my sister and our people, but for all of the world. If we do not stand for humanity today, we will most certainly lose that privilege tomorrow. Thank you. Ms. Abbas, very powerful. Thank you so much. Dr. Richardson, please. Sorry, the mic isn't going on. Is it on? Great, thank you. Chairman Kane, Ranking Member Rubio, Chairman Markey, Ranking Member Romney. Human Rights Watch appreciates this opportunity to testify regarding the role of private sector in human rights violations against Uyghurs and other Turkic communities in Xinjiang, the northwestern region of China. Building on 25 years of work documenting human rights violations in the Uyghur region, we recently concluded that Chinese authorities are committing crimes against humanity, against Uyghurs, Kazakhs, and other Turkic communities. Those crimes include imprisonment or other deprivation of liberty in violation of international law, persecution of an identifiable ethnic or religious group, enforced disappearances, torture, murder, and alleged inhumane acts intentionally causing great suffering or serious injury to mental or physical health, notably forced labor and sexual violence. The title of this hearing asks the question, where do we go from here? I'm taking the we to mean both the Biden administration and this Congress, which have affirmed their commitment to addressing the horrors occurring in the Uyghur region. So let me state at the outset that the US and like-minded democracies can do a great deal. My written testimony addresses issues of coerced or forced labor by Uyghurs and other Turkic communities and the role of the Chinese and foreign private sectors since the beginning of the Xinjiang authorities' strike hard against violent extremism campaign in 2014. To speak to some of the questions that you've put to me today, it is our view that first, Beijing's extreme repression and surveillance across the Uyghur region make the human rights due diligence expected of companies from the apparel to the silicon sectors and from domestic firms to foreign ones not currently possible. This, in turn, has implications for firms in the region. Do they know whether they are operating in ways that leave them complicit in serious human rights violations? For those that say they are sure their operations and supply chains are clean, how are they able to prove that? How hard do they even try? Inspectors cannot visit facilities unannounced or speak to workers without fear of reprisals. Some companies seem unwilling or unable to ascertain precise information about their own supply chains. A number are disturbingly unaware of the role of the Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps in the governance and political economy of the region. Two U.S. brands, Eileen Fisher and Reformation, have said that they will withdraw from the region, and some foreign auditing firms have said that they will no longer try to work there. Conversely, we have detailed the role of some Chinese surveillance technology companies deeply implicated in repression in the region. In the past six months, I have briefed an unprecedented number of banks, companies, investment firms, and manufacturers that in some way do business in the region. Despite all I explained to them, few express a willingness to withdraw or press authorities for better access. On some level, the private sector and the human rights community face the same problem, intransigence by central 
local and regional officials who continue to block unfettered access to the region, deepening concerns that those authorities have plenty to hide. Some of the tools available to the U.S., such as the Global Magnitsky Act, the entities and specially designated nationals lists, and withhold and release orders are proving useful. We welcome the administration's efforts with respect to targeted coordinated sanctions and the unprecedented efforts by Congress to end Uyghur's nightmares. But there is so much more to do. I want particularly to highlight the urgent, urgent, urgent need to pass the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act and the Speech Act of 2021. The former will help stem the flow of goods made with forced labor into the U.S., the latter to more carefully scrutinize exports that can be used for serious human rights violations. These subcommittees could hold a hearing with representatives of major U.S. firms with a presence in Xinjiang to assess whether and how they're ensuring that their operations are not causing, contributing to, or linked with adverse human rights impacts please urge all sectors to join the call to action put forward by the Coalition to End Forced Labor in the Uyghur region, of which Human Rights Watch is a proud member. Members of Congress should work closely with democracies around the world, and with, with parliamentarians and with governments, to collaborate around sanctions on individuals, companies, and government agencies from China credibly alleged to be complicit in Xinjiang human rights violations, and to bring to justice those responsible for crimes against humanity. Allow me to conclude with this recommendation. I urge all legislators hearing this testimony to discuss Xinjiang with the businesses in your states. We will provide you with the information on the human rights crimes taking place so that you can make an ethical case to your corporate constituents. Avoiding business in Xinjiang is something every good company should want to do. Thank you, and I welcome your questions. Thank you, Dr. Richardson. We'll now move into five-minute rounds of questions. And again, for the witnesses, you'll see Senate members coming and going during this vote sequence. I'll start, and as soon as I think Senator Markey gets back, I may, I may go to vote. Um, Dr. Zenz, you, you had a piece published, I believe, just earlier this week, uh, June 8, uh, in Foreign Policy, about the slow-motion genocide, and you used the phrase, a genocide without slaughter. And one of the things that I found really interesting about your article is that your research relied very heavily upon Chinese government officials' own statements about what they're doing. Um, how do Chinese officials currently assess the success of their campaign to drive down the Uyghur population through the horrific uh, tactics that you describe in your article? The assessment is uh, positive of their own policies. Um, reflections such as by high-profile academic Li Xiaoxia, who I cite, cited last year in my research paper, and she uh, was um, used to write the Xinjiang Population Report earlier in 2021, where she's praising the policies, uh, arguing that Uyghur women, this is slightly paraphrased, are no longer uh, baby-making machines, it's, the Chinese is roughly that. That's how, that's how it was tweeted famously by the U.S. Embassy in China. The baby uh, Uyghur women are no longer baby-making machines, and Twitter then suspended their account over violation. That was based on a research report by one of the, uh, the high-profile Xinjiang population researchers uh, cited in my work last year. Uh, and so they are praising, they are saying women have changed, their mind has changed, they no longer are being abused by extremist religious elements to have more children. 
they now can have um, a better education and their own career choices. Uh, there's also a lot of praise about the, the labor transfer, how it's successful in changing minds, changing traditional or backward values, and promoting employment and incomes. The Chinese government is full of praise over its own policies, and uh, doubtlessly they, they will be uh, in 20 years looking back if they can say, look, we have successfully made Xinjiang successful, it's, it's all prosperous, and the focus was on development, and of course that is also China's strategy uh, at the United Nations and other places to change the definition of human rights to economic prosperity and development. So this we is, see them full of praise and no regrets. This is, this is a very chilling thing. It's not just a coordinated campaign, it's a coordinated campaign that in the views of the Chinese officials that are designing it, they are feeling good that it's succeeding and that should create a sense of urgency to work on the forced labor bill and, and other bills. Um, Dr. Richardson, let me ask you this question. Um, we just passed a, a bill in the Senate. It was a comprehensive bill to try to focus on the U.S.-China relationship. There was a piece of the bill that Senator Romney and I sponsored dealing with the Olympics. We talked about this. Senator Romney, as you know, was the was the head of an Olympics that was held, Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City, and so understands the Olympic movement very, very well. We chose to not call for a boy, complete boycott in the, in the sense of the amateur athletes who have worked hard. We didn't want to target them, but we've called that a minimum for a diplomatic boycott. Um, I believe Dr. Zen's testimony suggested that we should also be encouraging corporations to revoke sponsorships, et cetera. We were of the opinion that an Olympics would create an opportunity around the world to focus attention on China, and in that frame of attention, we might do things to grab the world's attention and, and demonstrate more vividly to everyone the atrocities that are being conducted against Uyghurs. What advice might you have for us, either with respect to policy or how we interact with corporations, the media organizations that are covering the Olympics, so that we can use this moment of attention to dramatize what China would prefer to keep hidden? Thanks for the question, Senator. Uh, a couple of thoughts for you. We share the position uh, of supporting it, at least a diplomatic boycott. Uh, uh, the only uh, uh, piece of Senator Romney's op-ed uh, with which I disagreed a little bit was his uh, recall to the IOC and the idea of having a heart-to-heart -heart, uh, with that institution. I think that would require finding that the IOC has a heart. Um, I have <laughs> interacted with few institutions that had the power to make positive change and flatly refused to do so and spent a lot of energy denying that it had the ability to do so. Uh, and I think one of the biggest problems with the IOC relates to uh, a key development that we may see, which is about athlete activism and athletes being able to use their own voices uh, to express their concerns about being made to compete in a place where you know, they may share some of the views that we're all expressing this morning, and I think the IOC has not taken that on board. Uh, if you were to have a hearing with uh, US-based companies on human rights due diligence uh, and China, I would certainly get NBC and a number of the other uh, US-based companies here to explain how they are making sure that their engagement uh, in the Olympics doesn't contribute to violations. Very, very good idea. I'm going to now ask Senator Rubio to uh, take over questions. Let me build off that, uh, Dr. Richardson. Um, there are numerous American companies in the tech field and textiles who, who frankly either 
want to pretend like this problem doesn't exist because they benefit from it or are slow to get to it or what have you. For example, I've repeatedly written and notified uh, Thermo Fisher Scientific that, uh, that their technology is being used by Chinese law enforcement to build a, a, a DNA database of, of Uyghurs. And despite that, I mean, all evidence is that they, they continue to provide these products um, which enable these human rights abuses. So in your research, I mean, it's well documented that Thermo Fisher continues to do this and, and doesn't care. The question is, in your research, what other companies uh, do you believe are enabling the, these atrocities that we've seen? We've written, uh, Senator Rubio, thanks for the question, primarily about Thermo Fisher and its sale of DNA sequencers to the Xinjiang Public Security Bureau at the same time that that entity, along with the regional government, was carrying out a program called Physicals for All, and under the guise of a free healthcare program, was gathering DNA samples uh, to which the, you know, the, the recipients couldn't really say no. And we, we too, wrote repeatedly to Thermo Fisher asking what protections it had in place. And to be clear, we were, ever able, we were never able to specifically show that Thermo Fisher's sequencers were used in that campaign, but that they were being sold at this same time and wouldn't answer key questions. I think the bigger issue that it flags up, and part of the reason we're enthusiastic about the Speech Act, was that it wasn't illegal then or now for Thermo Fisher to sell that kind of technology. Uh, and part of our discussion with them was about the very idea that that technology could be used for gross human rights violations. And I think the Speech Act is very strong in suggesting that all different kinds of technologies that lots of American companies sell to China uh, you know, for surveillance or other kinds of technology purposes could be used for appalling human rights violations. And there's no, there's no effective quick check on that to try to, as you know better than I do, effectively export control a single technology takes years. So there has to be some kind of upfront scrutiny of companies that are making lots of money contributing to a, you know, a highly repressive environment. Well, some people would hear this and say, okay, you know, it's terrible, but how can, who care? I mean, the, what's so dangerous about collecting the DNA uh, of people? And you've talked about some of the grotesque human rights violations. I, mean, I could certainly speculate about the ability to design. I mean, stuff sounds like science fiction. It really isn't. The ability to design bioweapons and, uh, and biomaterial that target people of a certain genetic makeup but spare people of a different genetic makeup. Uh, look, there's advantages to having DNA data because it allows you a huge advantage in terms of testing for biomedicine. And then there are nefarious uses of it. Uh, when you talk about the grotesque human rights violations that could potentially result from collecting this DNA, are there any sort of specific things you have in mind that we suspect they could use it for, have been used for in the past, uh, uh, based on, on what we understand about scientific advances could be used. What, what exactly is the threat of, of this DNA collection so that people better understand? Well, even, even before the DNA is actually used for any purpose, the fact that it's collected coercively in an environment where there are no effective privacy rights and really no means of recourse, we associate ourselves with the UN expert who describes Xinjiang as a rights-free zone. But what we have documented authorities doing is building DNA databases to be able not just to employ it for some of the purposes you've described, but to be able to identify the relationships between people. So that if, for example, the authorities want to find person A for whatever reason, 
and they know that person A is related uh, through a DNA search to person B, and they can find person B and lean on that person to find person A, it gives them that much more power uh, to be able to control a population and surveil it. But we're also extremely concerned about all sorts of genotyping, about facial recognition, you know, and how this DNA is sold and used uh, for medical and other scientific research purposes in an environment where there are no controls on this, none. Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Senator Kane. Good to be with you today. Um, before we start, I want to commend um, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo for designating the Chinese Communist Party <clears throat> as being engaged in genocide and crimes against humanity when it comes to the Uyghur and the Tur Turkic population uh, there in China. And I also want to applaud Secretary of State Blinken for upholding that determination. Um, in May, Congressman Michael McCall asked uh, John Kerry, the Biden administration's special envoy for climate change, the following, quote, can you assure us that slave labor coming out of China, where genocide is taking place as we speak, are never a part of the climate solution in the United States? And in that hearing, Special Envoy Kerry acknowledged and said that, quote, solar panels, in some cases, are being produced by forced labor. Uh, Ms. Abbas, do you agree with assessments that solar panels produced in China are often produced using slave labor? She, she is here. She sh yes, I'm Ms. here. Alice. Sorry, I didn't realize that I was muted. Um, thank you for that question. Yes, um, uh, the uh, the panels and the uh, you know the so solar panels are coming from the the Uyghur region, and the Uyghur forced labor. Uh, is inside the uh, solar, uh, solar supply chain where the Uyghurs are forced to mine ports in the desert to create solar panel cells. And these companies also buy lots of uh, the Uyghurs for their uh, manufacturing process. So in order to fight the, this uh, normalization of modern day slavery, we should uh, pay attention to every industry, including solar panel and you made a really good point here, a Senator, about the, the climate change. Um, while Chinese regime is not paying attention to human beings, they are killing people, they are running active genocide, they are conducting active genocide, are they going to care for climate change? Um, and they always, when we engage with any kind of conversation with China, uh, including the uh, climate change, China's crimes against humanity should be up in the forefront because many companies, they are making money from the Uyghurs' blood, sweat, and the tears for their economic uh, advantage and the lobbying against the, uh, uh, you know, those uh, interests. Yes, I, I, appreciate, yeah, I, I appreciate that point. And I'm very concerned, as are you, that we place uh, our, our pressure toward uh, green policies and, and, and climate agenda ahead of slave labor and human rights. And I think we all know that uh, slave labor, Uyghur slave labor is used not only to um, create the solar panels, but also to mine the coal. A tremendous amount of coal yeah. is burnt, takes a tremendous amount of energy to, um, to, to create these silica panels. 
and um, we are in a situation, I hope, hope that we can avoid being in a situation uh, where we are putting, again, green policy ahead of human rights and supporting slave labor uh, that is being uh, promoted by the Chinese Communist Party against the Uyghur population. Um, I'd, I'd like to turn to um, history for a moment. The Chinese Communist Party is aggressively pursuing a policy of systematically repressing multiple ethnic minority groups, including Tibetans, Uyghurs, Mongolians, and ethnic Koreans. Today, what we call China has a long and complex history, including many diverse ethnicities and cultures, many changes in geographic borders. This question is for Dr. Zenz. Dr. Zenz, how did the Chinese Communist Party use and abuse China's complicated history to advance the Chinese Communist Party's geographic, ethnic, and cultural claims, and even justify the party's heavy-handed approach towards ethnic minorities in China? I think one of the most pertinent um, cases for this is the fact that in a recent Chinese state media documentary, a number of well-known Uyghur intellectuals and textbook editors were paraded with shaven heads and prison clothing, uh, having been sentenced to long prison terms over government-approved textbooks that were published uh, several years ago for supposedly promoting Han-Turkism and separatism. Uh, and now languishing in prison. And the Chinese government has embarked on a strong propaganda strategy um, to argue that the Uyghurs have always been Chinese. Uh, Pan-Turkism is the um, expression used for giving testimony to the, the Turkic heritage of the Uyghurs, who are you know, manifestly a Turkic people with a Turkic language uh, and ethnicity, etc. Uh, however, any association with the Turkic roots and supposedly in opposition to the Chinese roots is now being punished as a crime. And people are even put into prisons and internment camps and re-education camps for doing so. So China's uh, engaging sort of this, and of course Chinese academics are re actively rewriting history. Of course, of course they have been, but it's become even more intensified. Uh, similar things are happening in Tibet, you know, with Tibet's always been part of China. But in Xinjiang, it's become particularly extreme, you know, with parading these intellectuals and textbook editors, and now they're confessing their crime uh, just for including, like, Uyghur children's stories um, and, and it's sort of standard uh, Uyghur literature in, in textbooks, which were government-approved. Yep. Thank you, Dr. Sands. General's time has expired. I'll recognize myself for a round of questions. Um, Radio Free Asia's Uyghur service has been at the forefront of reporting on the brutal detention of millions of Uyghurs and Muslim atrocities in China's far west, making it impossible for the Chinese government to deny the existence of the detention camps and create uh, the uh, surveillance state which they're doing. I've long championed the RFA's Uyghur service despite the Chinese government's efforts to silence reporters by detaining and harassing their family members inside of China. I, conclude, uh, I concluded that we had to do something about it, and so in the Strategic Competition Act passed by the Senate this week, um, my provision was included to uh, increase by over 50% to $70 million a year uh, the Radio Free Asia Uyghur-only news service. Dr. Richardson, how important do you consider 
Radio Free Asia and its work in China, especially with regard to Xinjiang. Sorry, Senator Markey, I'm struggling for the right uh, adjective here. Essential, critical, like oxygen. Uh, you know, Radio Free Asia, broadly speaking, plays an incredibly important role in bringing uh, stories from the ground across Asia, and particularly in closed countries like China, to light, and often becomes sort of the first cut at international media uh, taking up those stories. And the price that some Uyghur service journalists have have played for their reporting uh, is is horrific. Gulchera Hoja, an award-winning journalist, has had her parents, her elderly parents, persecuted as a result of her reporting. Yeah, so the, the Chinese government has inflamed anti-Uyghur sentiment and Islamophobia throughout China through its portrayal of Uyghurs in its state-controlled media. So we have to have a counter, uh, which is inside that country. Uh, Dr. Richardson, what are the implications inside China with these negative media portrayals and constant fear-mongering, particularly in terms of how the Han majority interacts with the Uyghurs? Senator, I think for the most part, you know, it's the result one would expect. When people have no access to independent media, uh, you know, they have no alternative except what information the state provides them. But I do think, uh, I want to point to a, a, a scrap of optimism. When recently there was quite a debate about H&M in China and other companies that had expressed concern about using Xinjiang cotton, and for the first time ever, really, uh, the term Xinjiang was not blocked on Weibo, largely to uh, allow for people to express uh, hostility towards these companies, it also created the opportunity for some people across China to say, wait, what is going on in Xinjiang? Why is there so much concern? What is happening in the, sol in the, the solar or the cotton sector? And that was, I think, a very healthy sign that when people have access to information, they'll ask questions. Yeah. Uh, Ms. Abbas, um, thank you for your activism and your work to shed light on the atrocities being committed by the Chinese government and also for your support for Uyghur communities here in the United States. And I know that you um, are very focused on this issue. We have a, a very vibrant Uyghur community in Massachusetts, and so it's important that your voice is there and it's an outlet for those seeking to share their experiences. Is there a message, Ms. Abbas, that you would like to send to those Uyghurs and other persecuted minority groups who are watching you at this hearing today? Each time when we have a hearings like this and they have the attention of our uh, brave lawmakers who are defending the humanity and the uh, uh, trying to raise awareness and to do something, take some tangible action, that give a hope for Uyghur people. And I want to say that, that the Uyghurs and diaspora should not forget that they are not alone. There are people like yourself, uh, like the senators here, and the many people who are defending the conscience of the world, which is being attested with this current uh, atrocity, current genocide. Um, there are people being the voice of these voiceless and defending those defenseless Uyghur people. So, Stay strong, have a hope, and don't look at people like myself and my family is being retaliated because I spoke out. Do not stay silent and take action. 
and be the voice for your families if they are being taken. We are facing buried of uh, disinformation and attacks on our activists and uh, the witnesses too, and the survivors by the Chinese regime, by the Radio Free Asia journalists, but the Radio Free Asia journalists are doing amazing job uh, with covering, like uh, they are the first one to report the uh, detention of my sister in the June 2020, and that they are the one actually who reported with the investigative journalism with Mr. Dolkan Isa's mother's death. So we should um, use whatever we can and the prioritize uh, you know, funding the independent organizations like Radio Free Asia Service to cover the genocide. So you know there are a lot of good things are happening and that, that gives us the hope and the fuel ourselves to continue fight against this brutal, barbaric regime. Yep. Thank, Thank you. you for your leadership. Thank you for your courage. Um, Senator Romney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Dr. Zenz, a question uh, to you, and perhaps two questions to you. Uh, normally, practices such as this would yield um, extraordinary outpourings of, of anger and angst from people around the world. The governments would, would, uh, would be uh, very angry and would, would express this in many ways. Uh, given what's happening to the Uyghur people. Uh, so I guess I'm asking you to help analyze the mind of Xi Jinping and the Communist Chinese Party. Why, why do you believe they felt they could go ahead and do this? What's their purpose for doing so? And why do they think they'd get away with it? And, and, and secondly, um, and, and this may be impossible to predict, but who's next? Given what they've done to Tibet, what they're doing with the people of Hong Kong, what they're doing to other ethnic minorities within China, what they're doing with the, uh, with the Uyghur people. Who, who might be next? So again, two parts. One, why are they doing this? And two, who's next? Yes, thank you. i quickly respond to the second question, who is next. Um, I believe anyone who is, is next who is systematically acting not in line or even in discord or even against the Chinese government in a more organized or institutionalized way. Um, and I'm thinking of instituted religion, be it Falun Gong, house church Christians, Muslim groups outside of Xinjiang. Um, even Marxist students uh, have been targeted. I predict, to also answer that question, I predict that the current increasing repression, not just of Uyghurs and Tibetans, but of anybody within the Chinese Communist Party control is gonna spiral into increasingly, increasing paranoia of control. Because that's the tendency, that's the historic precedent. If you look at Stalin, if you look at Hitler, if you look at these autocrats, there's a, you know, a repression only begets more repression and control begets a loss of trust, which actually makes repression worse. Um, and who's to say who is next in line in this, in, in, in what I believe is a growing paranoia within the regime. The question of why, and especially the Uyghurs, is because the Chinese government did realize at some point that they had lost control. They were not going to win over the Uyghurs. The Uyghurs were too concentrated. Here we're looking at the issue of population, the human threat. So Uyghurs is one of the largest ethnic groups. It's 11 now, close to 12 million people growing at a good speed. Many academic studies that I've researched uh, say the Uyghurs are too concentrated. It's almost impossible to penetrate, break up the society 
it's almost impossible to dilute the negative effect of their religion. And so the, the breaking up and the breaking of this large entity that has engaged in violent, in various, including violent acts of resistance against repression. Um, basically, Xinjiang geopolitical importance was always high, but further increased with the Belt and Road Initiative. And of course, Xi Jinping's drive to just have complete control. And so this initiative is a long-term experiment to for good really deal, break and assimilate and to some extent destroy the, group, the group's entity and identity as a group. Um, of course, we see some application of that elsewhere. Tibetans are also subjected to a coercive assimilatory pressures on an unprecedented scale. It's like a micromanagement of poverty alleviation, uh, really managing people's livelihoods and changing them for good. And um, so Xinjiang is in some sense a laboratory, but the reason is the Uyghurs are concentrated. There's many of them. They have uh, shown great resilience to assimilation and they did engage in targeted acts of violent resistance, uh, albeit not of the nature the government claims it to be as an organized terrorism. And that's why they were targeted. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Abbas, uh, let me turn to you for a moment. Uh, first, to underscore my and my colleagues' uh, horror at, at what is occurring for your, uh, your sister and your family. Uh, our, our, our hearts uh, bleed uh, as we think of what you're enduring and what your family is enduring. Let me ask you whether, uh, to date, whether of the, the, any of the pressure that you're seeing from the international community has had any impact on lessening the abuses that the Communist Chinese Party is perpetrating against the Uyghur people? Has there been any reduction uh, in, the, in the atrocities or, or has it uh, continued unabated? Um, we see some uh, pressure coming out. You know, the Uyghurs, they were not allowed to go to mosques. Now they are calling them come back so they can uh, tell the world you know, that they can show the world that the Uyghurs are still living normal lives. Um, and also uh, whenever, when there is a like a raise of the case of certain individuals of family members uh, who's being uh, detained, they are showing the video clips or pictures or bring them out and speaking. So uh, I'm sure they are paying attention and sanctions always work, um, but uh, you know, should be continue of uh, sanctioning the uh, perpetrators, the uh, officials, and also their children should not be allowed to enjoy the freedom that we have uh, in the United States or uh, you know, other parts of the world. So uh, more sanctions uh, will be helpful, whatever we can to take tangible action to stop this genocide. You know, as uh, uh, our uh, wonderful panelists here, Dr. Uh, Sophie Richardson and Adrian Zass's great work, we see that the Uyghur women's bodies are the battleground in this genocide right now. And if this continues, might be, you know, it will be too late for the Uyghur people, but if we do anything to stop this evil regime right now, might not be too late to save the, uh, the future of this free and democratic world, uh, which, uh, you know, our children and grandchildren will inherit from us and everything that we have worked so hard on the past 75 years, we can still save uh, the free democratic world before the Chinese regime implements all that. And as I mentioned earlier, 
They tried with the Uyghurs and Tibetans, and now look at the Hong Kong, what's happening in Hong Kong. And also they are exporting the surveillance system and the, even maybe the uh, slave labor, forced labor to other countries as well, while they are you know, already exporting the uh, surveillance system to more than 18 countries, as we know. So it is very critical for us to take this last chance to stop this and save the world. Thank, Thank you. you. Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Romney. Um, I believe Senators Cardin and Coons might come back, and so I think what I'll do is start a second round of questions for anyone who has them. And, and I know I'm going to jump in because I want to ask questions about the reach of this Uyghur persecution into other nations. We've talked a lot about the challenges within, but Ms. Abbas gave a, a talk at a think tank in 2018, and within six days in China, uh, in Xinjiang, her sister and I believe mother initially had, were both uh, arrested. Um, recent news reports suggest that three U.S. allies, the UAE and Saudi Arabia and Egypt, have been detaining Uyghurs who live in their countries and allow that, allowing them to be deported back to China, uh, the, a story that Senator Rubio referenced from earlier this week in CNN, a husband and wife and child, and the wife was pregnant with the second child. The husband was arrested in Dubai, detained. The wife made every effort to get the husband released or find out what was the challenge. And the husband said, I'm not going to be released. You should move to Turkey, where you'll be more protected as a member of this Turkic minority. So she went with her child and eventually gave birth to a second child and hasn't seen her husband now in years because he was deported back to China. What might we do, Dr. Richardson, let's focus on this issue, um, you know, talking tough with our allies and telling them not to do this. I mean, we have, we have a lot of relations with Egypt, the UAE, and Saudi Arabia, and it strikes me that we should be having very candid discussions with them to get them to not be complicit in these forced deportation campaigns that are part of this long global reach to persecute Uyghurs. But share your thoughts on this issue. Sure, Senator Kane. The first case that we actually wrote about was in Cambodia, Christmas 2009, when a group of Uyghurs who actually had already received uh, UN High Commissioner for Refugees Persons of Concern letters were put on a plane and sent back to China. You know, these were people who had already been designated as having legitimate cases. And it's been a real struggle across different parts of Asia, uh, Central Asia, and increasingly the Middle East. I think one of the most important things that the US could easily do with allies would be you know, not just to have those candid conversations, but to offer in a coordinated fashion to step in and take those people, shelter them, offer to give them some kind of you know, a, a safe haven at least until they're able to do what international law requires, which is to contest their removal before a competent court, but even better would be to give them asylum right away, or, I mean, to give them some protected status. And the more that that could be coordinated across allies so that no one country has to step in, uh, I think would be extremely important. Not a week goes by when we aren't dealing with a case someplace of somebody who's stuck in jeopardy and at risk of being sent back. And many governments also literally just don't understand who Uyghurs are. They don't understand that people, simply by virtue of their ethnicity, are at disproportionate risk if they are returned to many 
immigration officials, they're all just people with Chinese passports. So I think there's a lot that actually could be done that would also send a very powerful message that people will be given refuge. So just to follow up, I want to make sure I understand what you're suggesting. You would say that if somebody was going to be detained in another country and clearly it looked like the detention was just oriented toward pulling them back to China because they're Uyghurs, um, the U.S. or other nations could allow them to apply for asylum, uh, demonstrating under U.S. law the well-justified fear of persecution. And if they would do that, we might be able to work, especially if this happens in a nation that is an ally of the United States, we might be able to work to have folks brought here under the traditional asylum rules. Um, other nations would participate in that as well. Um, that's a, that's a, a good thought to put on the table for us to contemplate. I appreciate that. Let me see if uh, Senator Markey has additional questions. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, the Chinese government's uh, genocide uh, is uh, enabled by its massive and uh, invasive surveillance system deployed throughout uh, Xinjiang. Uh, we also know that a number of United States companies, um, technology companies, uh, have been involved and profited from the Chinese government's authoritarian surveillance industry and that many of their products are being used in Xinjiang right now, today, as we are sitting here. Dr. Zenz, uh, in your opinion, how critical has technology uh, been to the Chinese government's campaign against the Uyghurs? Uh, has it helped to uh, enable them to commit their genocide? And if you would, name the United States companies. Uh, and uh, what you think uh, their, their actions sh should be in the future in terms of their um, aiding and abetting uh, the genocide. Yes, so um, this is a somewhat complicated question. A lot of the technology transfer from what indirect. I'm personally aware of the use of NVIDIA graphics chips in technologies because of the high processing capacity. Uh, the Chinese are very actively trying to replace, uh, reduce the dependence on US technology. And I don't believe that the dependence on US technology has been as direct as we, well, would like it to be in order to establish sort of problematic links. I have, uh, so I think this is very much a, an issue for further research. Uh, I also have to say that this is not a topic that I've done a lot of direct research on myself. Okay, well, that's great. How about you, Dr. Richardson? Yeah. Have you uh, had a chance to look at it? We've looked mostly at uh, what, what Thermo Fisher's engagement was, but, and I would endorse what Professor Zenz just said. It, it's, <laughs> I'm trying to think of a succinct way to explain this. It is very hard to know exactly what U.S. or any other country's businesses are actually doing in Xinjiang. And one of the best things that could come out of this hearing would be to task CRS with doing research on that so that we, we could all have the same information. Uh, you know, but, uh, you know, the surveillance networks there are incredibly complex. We've primarily looked at the Chinese firms uh, that are engaged in it. But you could easily take the list that China File published of Forbes 500 companies uh, a few years ago, pick the American ones, and write them and ask them what their, what their human rights due diligence strategies are and how deeply enmeshed in the surveillance operations in the region they are. Okay, thank you. And uh, Dr. Abbas, what would you like to see done in order to ensure that Uyghur families here in the United States are not intimidated, not harassed by 
Chinese officials or uh, subnational groups that uh, uh, use communications technologies to uh, torment those families that are here in the United States? We need to pass some uh, legislations to uh, deal with the threats against the Uyghur Americans, uh, because as you mentioned, you know, the Uyghurs are getting threatened by uh, the Chinese regime, hostage taking their family members and threatening them. So we should investigate the interference by the regime against the Uyghur Americans. And this includes the threats against the health and the well-being of the Uyghurs, as well as uh, their families back home. Um, and there are many uh, coercive videos of the Uyghur families are denouncing or disowning the Uyghurs uh, in America. And that should be condemned and the uh, counter with the truth. Um, and the center Kane represents the largest Uyghur American community in the US. And the, uh, we really appreciate him highlighting the, the Uyghurs uh, case. And that actually, you know, we believe keep the, the family members alive just the highlighting, speaking, and then we need to investigate the uh, presence uh, of the um, uh, CCP officials spreading uh, propaganda um, on uh, American campuses or American, you know, like our free social media platforms. Uh, they are doing everything they can to uh, dehumanizing the activists and also spreading disinformation. So that should stop. No, and I agree with you, and I think it should be very high on the American policy agenda uh, to put uh, a plan in place in order to give protections to Uyghur Americans and, and their ability inside of our own country to speak freely and without fear. Uh, and we know how good the Chinese are at using modern telecommunications technologies uh, in order to uh, put fear in the hearts of Uyghur Americans, and we have to do everything we can as a government to protect those people. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Romney, you have other questions? Yes, thank you. Uh, Dr. Richardson, I, I was not familiar with the, uh, the deportations of Uyghurs uh, to China. Is, what is the, the purpose of that from the Chinese standpoint? Is it to silence uh, uh, outspoken uh, uh, individuals, or is it to try and bring all Uyghurs back to China? What, what's, what is the intent, do you believe, of, of this effort? Senator, it's a peculiar pathology. You know, most governments, when people flee, are fine for them to go. They don't want them back. Yeah. Uh, and it's yeah. also peculiar because the people who have been forced to return are not necessarily political activists or known government critics. Many of the cases that we know about are simply ordinary people. They're business people. They're scholars. They're you know, not, not sensitive in any particular way. And so we can only conclude that the Chinese government's goal is to try to forcibly return all Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslims to the country so that they're unable to share their stories uh, with people outside. And I think that's a very frightening uh, uh, impulse. And the fact that so many governments have complied with it and assisted it is very worrying. Yeah, I, I have no sense of the of the extent of the uh, the, the Uyghur diaspora uh, and 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 where Uyghur uh, individuals have uh, have uh, gone to, where they where they live. Do you have any sense of sort of what the population of, of diaspora is and and where it might uh, be concentrated if it is concentrated? Well, the largest communities are here in Germany and Turkey and in Australia, uh, but the places where we're seeing problems are, or, or I have to say, I'm sure there are people being sent back we'll never know about. 
particularly from Central Asia, for example. Um, Shanghai Cooperation Organization states that are not exactly, you know, devoted adherents of human rights or refugee policy. Uh, you know, but some of the cases that we've seen recently, uh, people in Pakistan, uh, people in West Africa, uh, in various Gulf states, uh, we'll never know how many people got sent back. Uh, it's only in, I would say, the last seven or eight years, and partly due to the rise of social media, that people in distress are able to telegraph what's happening to them, which allows the other people in the diaspora and organizations like ours to get on the phone and start making noise uh, so that people don't get sent back, but we don't always succeed. Dr. Zenz made a, a comment a moment ago that, that uh, struck me uh, very powerfully, and that is that what we're seeing is mass atrocity without mass slaughter. Uh, it, it's the atrocity of genocide without the uh, attendant slaughter of genocide. And this deportation effort from nations around the world gives one the sense that there really is an effort to not only eliminate the Uyghurs in, in China itself, but to eliminate them throughout the world. Uh, it's a, uh, well, it, it reminds us of a, of a period in the history of the world which is uh, abhorrent and, and it is going on and most of the nations of the world have normal relations with the country that is doing this. It's, it's, uh, it's extraordinary. Uh, the Senate just passed legislation uh, mandating a diplomatic boycott of the Olympic Games in, um, uh, in, in Beijing, and uh, which I, I believe is, is very appropriate. Uh, what, what, and I, I know there's concern about, about uh, sponsorships uh, and, and trying to encourage companies not to sponsor the Olympics. The challenge, by the way, f given the, the way the Olympics works is that companies buy sponsorships for multiple games. So they, they can't pick and choose a particular country. That's to prevent them from doing what we'd like them to do here, which is boycotting uh, uh, China's uh, uh, games. But um, are, are the things we need to do or be aware of uh, to prevent uh, China from being able to hide from the atrocity of the Uyghur uh, circumstances uh, as the Olympics arrive? Are there efforts that come to your mind that we should uh, have in mind to try and uh, draw attention to as opposed to prevent the hiding of what's happening to the Uyghurs? Please, yes, Dr. Richardson. Thank you. Uh, we talked about the Olympics a little bit, I think, Senator, while you were voting. Uh, I think there are a lot of things that the U.S. can and should do, and I think this is, these Olympics are going to be a consular challenge of enormous proportions. You know, let's imagine, for example, uh, U.S. athletes who go and want to uh, you know, post on social media that they expect to be private concerns about Uyghurs, or they're asking questions, or, or they're simply having conversations with their family members that authorities decide are problematic. And, and, they, could, and they could be arrested for doing so well, they could, it, uh, under Chinese law. They should expect to be surveilled without yeah, question. Yeah. But it's worth pointing out that we did write to all of the top sponsors and to NBC asking what their human rights due diligence strategies were around these games, and none of them has replied. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, what an important hearing, and, and that last answer suggests that we might want to write them, and they better, they better reply. Um, and I think you've all, each of the three witnesses, have given us some very concrete steps we can take, whether it's with respect to forced labor bill, legislation to protect Uyghurs in the United States, activities with respect to our allies who are participating in 
in deportation. So we've come with a lot of to-dos out of this meeting, and I think it's very, very important. I want to thank all of our witnesses, and I also want to introduce into the record, if there's no objection, two uh, documents. One is the recent article in Foreign Policy that Dr. Zenz has offered. Beijing plans a slow genocide in Xinjiang. Adrian Zenz and Aaron Rosenberg, June 8, 2021. With no objection, we will put that into the record. And second, today, Amnesty International has issued a new report, China's Mass Internment, Torture, and Persecution of Muslims in Xinjiang. And I would like to ask that that report be entered into the record as well. There being no objection, that will happen. The record will remain open in case other committee members have questions for our witnesses. I'd ask that those questions be submitted by close of business tomorrow. And I would encourage the witnesses, if there are additional questions, uh, that you be prompt and, uh, and comprehensive in responses. But I really want to thank these, these witnesses. All three of you have helped us um, just shine a spotlight on something that we need to know more about, and so does the world. And you've given us concrete steps we can take to improve this, the lives of this really important group of people, and we will do so. With that, the committee is adjourned.